Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I am Aaron Street. And this is episode three of the Lawyerist Podcast. This is a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. Today's guest is Carolyn Elephant, the founder of myshingle.com and the preeminent solo practice evangelist. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionist, also known as Call Ruby. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. More on that later. And stay tuned after Sam's interview for a question from a reader from Twitter, and she asks, should solo attorneys form a company, or is it okay to be a solo proprietor? Solo and small firm lawyers have turned to Carolyn Elephant and my shingle since 2002 for a wealth of information on starting and building a law firm. That includes blog posts, ebooks, checklists, forms, and very much more. Uh, Carolyn was out front on legal blogging, and she has been a steadfast advocate for the advantages of solo practice ever since. Today with me is Carolyn Elephant. I'm going to let her introduce herself in just a moment uh, because I think people like to give their own bios. But Carolyn is, um, she's maybe the solo practice evangelist is maybe the best way to describe her. She's been blogging for longer than most lawyers. So she's sort of the pioneer on blogging and and what she has been blogging about is going solo. Uh, I've known Carolyn for a few years through conferences and uh, blogging and, and things like that. And obviously I've been reading Carolyn's blog for a very long time uh, since I, I took her advice when I was going solo myself. But Carolyn, now I'm going to hand it over to you and I'd like you to give your own bio. Okay, thanks, Sam. I am really glad to be doing this podcast. Uh, as you mentioned, I have been blogging at myshingle.com for quite a long time. In fact, uh, tomorrow, December 10th, is my, my unlucky 13th anniversary. Oh, happy blogiversary. Doing, uh, yes, I'll be doing a post on that. Um, and I have also had my own practice for, I guess, around 20 years now. My practice focus is on issues related to energy law, and I tend to work with um, smaller emerging energy companies uh, in, in the renewables area. I also represent landowners in um, eminent domain proceedings. So um, as, as in uh, my blog, which sort of uh, talks about uh, solo and small firms uh, as uh, a, a force, um, in, in my practice, I also tend not to focus on the incumbent providers like large utilities, but represent kind of the uh, the outliers, the small competitors, and um, the parties that are impacted by uh, by large companies. So even though it seems like there's no connection between um, energy law and the work that I do at my shingle and the changes in the legal profession, there's actually uh, surprisingly a lot of overlap. That's interesting. Uh, you know, like you, I write a blog that's not really related to what I did as a lawyer. Um, and I found that in an odd way, it's still sometimes uh, 
you know, I didn't get business for my blog, but it still worked out, I think, in, in good ways for me professionally, not just as a blogger. Does it, do you find the same thing? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, well, well, one thing that is very odd is that because I, I do have a reasonable presence in, in the energy field and, and also, you know, I have this uh, affiliation with my shingle. Sometimes people actually think I'm two different people because they don't really see the connection immediately. But I do And, find and because Carolyn Elephant is such a common name. Oh, yes, I know. That's right. <laughs> but I often do find, um, especially in writing about... Uh, you know, and I, I use the word, you can see my air quotes, disruption, because I know how you feel about that word. I feel <laughs> the same way. But in terms of the disruption in the legal profession with uh, solo and small firms being able to take a larger share um, and handle uh, more cases because of technology, um, I see this, those same forces in the utility industry where uh, solar panels um, and, and small renewables are gaining a lot of traction and posing a threat to incumbent utilities. And there's questions about, you know, how you go through this transition period and the transitions on both sides are, are very similar. So um, I, I find that just tracking those issues on the legal side often informs some of the work that I do on the energy side. Interesting. So um, so here's why you're here today. Uh, you know, we have a website that our main demographic is obviously solo and small firm lawyers, and, and yours is and has been for even longer than that, which I assume means that you get asked a lot uh, how what somebody should do to go solo. Um, you know, people probably talk to you about um, whether it's an email or when you're networking, uh, people probably approach you and ask you for advice about how to go solo. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because a few people have talked to me about this recently, and they've wondered why we don't have an article about it on Lawyerist. And part of that is, I think, because it's kind of personal. Um, but part of that is because I guess I've just never sat down and tried to put together like, how do you prepare to go solo? So that's what I want to talk today. I mean, how should someone prepare to go solo? And I guess um, I'm thinking about someone primarily who either has a job or um, some kind of income, although it may be it may be ending soon. And so they're looking at going solo as um, maybe they're looking at it as a way to, to the way forward for the future for them. Maybe they're hoping to build a book of business and take it to a, another firm, whatever. Um, but they've probably been practicing for a little while. They have an existing stream of income. Um, and so they're not really sure how to make the transition to solo practice. Does that sound familiar to you? Um, it, it does. It actually, I mean, that was my own experience um, because I was working at a small firm and I had gotten notice back then that I wasn't um, partner material. I mean, today it would just be an economic layoff. You would call right. it what it is. But back then, you know, it was still about merit and things like that. So um, so I had six months to uh, to stay to stay at the firm and either find another position or, or start a firm. And so the first three months, I, you know, wasn't quite committed to starting a practice. I looked around for different jobs. But towards the last three months, I really was focused uh, probably 80 or 90 percent on starting my own firm as opposed to um, finding another job. And, and even surprisingly, the two, those two uh, act activities, the, you know, interviewing for a position and, and thinking about starting a firm also sort of aligned, um, or at least looking back, it seemed like they did align. So well, that's interesting. I, yeah. uh, my, my experience was similar. I, the same timeline, Although mine was because I had been 
let go from a medium-sized firm I was working for, and so I was collecting unemployment insurance. So I applied for jobs I didn't like for, didn't really want for three months, and then I had a three months uh, deadline where I was like, you know, if I have three months left on my unemployment insurance, I'm going to start my own practice. Yeah, well, that's also if later on, I don't know when you want to discuss that, that actually that issue of unemployment insurance and starting a firm is sometimes an issue that um, can become problematic depending on what state you're in and what kinds of requirements are in place for unemployment insurance. Let's make sure and circle back to that. I think um, the first problem I think people have is probably in setting a date to go solo. Now, you and I had sort of a built-in deadline. I talk to a lot of people yeah. who don't have a built-in deadline, and so I, I'm not sure how to how exactly to urge them to make the transition from thinking about going solo to actually getting ready to do it because it feels like such a big step to them. What do you usually tell people? I think, you know, at some point, you know, first of all, I, I usually tell people if they don't have a set deadline in place that they ought to impose one in their mind because otherwise you become involved in this analysis paralysis and you it, it can hurt your work at your place of employment and you don't move yourself forward. So I think it's a good idea to have some sort of set deadline for making a decision, at least making a decision. And whether it's six months, it probably shouldn't be longer than a year because otherwise you're just going to be thinking about it uh, forever. So that that's really, I think, the first thing. And then in whatever time frame you've given yourself, I think it's really important to start um, sort of immersing yourself um, in the solo and small firm culture and learning more about what it entails. What is that? Tell me more about that. I, I'm, that's not something I've really talked to people about. So I think that's interesting. So I think, you know, one of the first things that you might do, so let's say you're, you're currently working at a medium-sized firm and the work is okay and you don't know how long your job is going to continue, but it's fine for now. So let's say you do set this, um, this uh, six-month deadline for yourself. Um, I would say that, you know, once you set the deadline, um, start reaching out to people who you know who have their own practices. Um, I know that when I started my firm, I had uh, well, one friend from law school who had started his own practice. It was um, he started it in New Jersey, and I, you know, gave him a call to you know find out more about what he was doing, how he found clients. Um, I also knew uh, I had actually in the office where I was working, there was another attorney who was renting space who had started his own energy firm. And so I would uh, usually, you know, stop by his office, uh, like, you know, every two or three weeks and, you know, just get a sense of what he was doing. And I, I remember being in his office and he had his own stereo system and he would play, you know, symphony music and he would, you know, he had somebody from uh, Georgetown Law School working for him and his practice, even though it was the similar to the firm that I was working for, it was just so different from the way the firm operated. And so it gave me a sense of the kind of flexibility and autonomy that you could have um, starting out on your own. Um, so, you know, I, I would first do that, sort of track those networks. Um, you know, you can call your school's alumni office and have them put you in touch with maybe alumni who are solos. If you're on a bar committee, maybe there's somebody who's in their own practice who you could talk to. And even um, 
you know, listservs and, and blogs. Uh, I know that there are usually a lot of people who go on the ABA Solo Says listserv and kind of lurk for a while or ask some questions. But I think even reaching out to bloggers, I mean, as you said, I don't want to, you know, drive, drive <laughs> you know, the, the influx of phone calls to you. But um, if there's somebody who's doing a blog who's a solo or a small firm lawyer in a practice area that is of interest to you, you can even reach out to them with an email. I find that most bloggers are pretty generous about you know, at least responding with a quick email or following up with a phone so, call. So uh, basically, uh, kick your networking into high gear, but refocus it on solo or small firm lawyers. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's definitely one thing to do. And part of it, I, I guess you're right, it is networking. Um, I always consider networking to be something that has more of an end, like more of an ask in mind. And I don't necessarily consider this to have an ask, although, you know, truth be told, it does eventually lay the foundation for that. I mean, I know that, you know, with this solo lawyer who I used to talk to who rented the office space in my firm, you know, after I started my firm, you know, from time to time, I would ask if he ever needed any help on a contract basis. So you do, you know, um, even though it's more information gathering, I think, than than networking, it eventually sets the foundation for for networking when you do start your firm. So, um, I, that makes a ton of sense to me, and I think is a good segue to um, what sorts of marketing can you do while you might still be working for another law firm? Because this is this is just networking, right? This is just building relationships. But um, can you and should you do any make any attempts to try and go out and get clients before you've actually left your existing firm? So this is really, really tricky on a number of levels. I mean, certainly um, most uh, bar rules state that if you're at a firm and the firm has clients who you haven't worked with, um, soliciting them while you work at the firm for your potential firm is, is something that's completely off limits. Um, in terms of clients who you work with, um, I think the rules are a little bit different. You can certainly contact them um, after you leave the firm. But, you know, I, I guess if, you know, if, if you have clients, if there are firm clients who you work with closely, you may want to, I think it's okay to sort of float the idea that it's an option that you're thinking about starting a firm in the future, but I wouldn't do anything in terms of, you know, asking for files or you know, certainly not signing representation what about not even What, what about not even with existing clients or the firm's clients, but like, could you build could you put out a website for your new firm before you leave your old firm and would that marketing somehow get screwed up so so, some of this may be a little bit firm specific i mean i think that setting up a firm your own firm while you're still working in a firm is asking for trouble um because there are potential you know if for some reason somebody came to your site and then sued you for malpractice, you know, it could implicate your firm also and it's not the way that you want to start things off. But I do think that, you know, assuming that your law firm or the agency, you know, if you're working for a government agency, assuming that they don't have any restrictions on outside activity, um, I think that, for example, starting a blog on your own about a a certain area of practice that you might want to enter into. I mean, I think that something like that is appropriate, and particularly if the articles are very uh, substantive, um, you know, maybe like a seven-part series on the recent Supreme Court decision on XYZ. So I think that, you know, starting something like that, maybe not publicizing it broadly, but at least, you know, getting it set up and getting in the rhythm of 
doing that kind of blogging. I mean, I think that, again, barring any restrictions at your firm, something like that is okay. I think that, uh, you know, let's say that your law firm is has sent you to a conference or if there's a CLE you want to go to, I think that going to those activities um, at your firm's expense and then, you know, introducing yourself to people and making connections without necessarily saying you're starting a firm, I mean, I think that's completely appropriate. And I think even, um, you know, trying to uh, get on speaker panels or getting more involved in bar events where your firm is paying the cost um, I think that that's appropriate too, even though it may benefit you down the line because, you know, while you're still at your firm, your firm is still getting this, the benefit from it. I mean, if you're on a panel and your firm paid for you to go to the conference, while you're there, the firm is still getting a benefit and arguably down the line, they may still get a benefit because people may come to the firm rather than you. Um, but I think that, you know, taking advantage, I, I, I don't really consider it taking advantage. I, I would say, you know, while you're at a firm, um, if you have access to certain resources that will help to um, advance you if you start a firm and that while you're at the firm also advance your employer's interests, I think it's appropriate to take advantage of those. I guess the those. distinction to me feels a little bit like you can continue to market yourself in the same way that you always have. But if you're, but it, you, yes. you can't, you couldn't, for example, if somebody, while you're still at that firm, if somebody called up your, your personal cell phone and said, I have a case, um, and I'd like to hire you, what you can't do is say, wait a week, and then I'll take your case on my private firm. That's actually probably the firm's client. Right, right, yeah. I would um, I, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, there, there could be a situation where somebody approaches you and says, you know, look, we've got this multi-billion dollar class action. We want you to handle it, only you. We don't want your firm to do it. I mean, it, you know, if, if, if that kind of opportunity came up, I think you could take advantage of it, but I think you would have to like quit your job right. that day. So, I mean, I think that's a really good point. So your, your deadline for when you're going to start your firm is basically you shouldn't consider your firm to be your business until that date. And if, and if you've started considering it your business and you've started thinking that you're doubling up on marketing or networking, you should probably just advance the day and move it up and go ahead and start your firm earlier if you can, right? Yes, that's right. And that's where people, I think, do get into trouble. They sort of want it, you want it both ways. You want to be able to continue taking your salary while, you know, building up an asset for yourself. And that's usually where people, you know, get into trouble at, at the end and where it causes confusion. Do you, so. do you think, by the way, that it's important for people to form a business entity or should they just you know, um, create an assumed name or be a sole, sole proprietorship, you know, Carolyn Elephant, ESQ. So I always, that's something I go back and forth on and my, um, my thoughts on it have changed. I mean, it certainly is easiest to just starting out operate as a sole proprietorship. If it's, if it's just you, um, in terms of the benefits you get from uh, a formal entity, they don't really apply so much when it comes to lawyers because your largest, uh, the, the biggest uh, potential form of liability is going to be malpractice. And even if you have a corporate entity, that's not going to shield you from it. Um, in terms of naming the firm, you know, again, I've, I, I've had some change in views on that. I mean, originally I thought, you know, just using your own name, Lofts is Carolyn Elephant, is is really the best way to go. Now I'm sort of, you know, with with sort of the advent of internet marketing, focus on branding, and also the rise of a lot of um, 
either non-lawyer or legal professional, whatever you call them, these competitor entities, I think that, you know, having a trade name at least can give you more of an asset um, in the long run. Um, and, you know, if you're concerned about looking too small of just having one person, um, a trade name can kind of, con may convey that there's a little bit more of a business behind you um, without running afoul of bar rules. I mean, obviously you can't say, you know, Carolyn Elephant and Associates if nobody's working for you. Um, but, uh, you know, but there are also, and you, you have to check rules because there are restrictions on trade names. Um, and in terms of the business entity, I mean, I find it to be, you know, if, if there are benefits to be gained from having a business entity, um, sometimes if you are going to be vying for business through an RFP, having a formal entity can be helpful, um, up, you know, applying for, you know, woman or minority business owned status. Um, and of course, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, if you have people working for you, I think then, you know, or if you're in, in, engaged in a lot of leases, I think then um, having a business entity could be um, useful and the hassles of, you know, keeping it up to date and filing reports are outweighed by the protections. Yeah, that I think you, you just listed a few of the things that I tick off, which is like, if you, if you ever, if you really are just going to be a true solo, just you and your laptop and your pro, that's how you plan to practice law, then it probably is a wash. But if you're going to sign a lease, um, if that's especially that's not a month-to-month -month lease, um, if you're going to take on employees or long-term independent contractors, um, and if you're going to partner up with somebody, you know, those are some of the times I think you probably ought to have a business entity. Yes, and it's not, you know, and the thing is, is that, I mean, not everybody who starts a firm starts with all of those pieces in place on day one. So I think that, you know, if you're starting out, and you're not sure of where it's going to go, I think you can operate, you know, as a non, without a formal status for a while, and then eventually form one, um, you know, and it, it shouldn't be so difficult to make the transition at, mm -hmm. at that point. And I think, um, so I, I started out as a, as a single member corporate or a single owner corporation, which uh, turned out to be really clunky and unwieldy for me. Um, it was two tax returns, which is actually a substantial amount of money when you're just a, a new solo starting out. Um, fortunately, Minnesota makes it easy to convert to an LLC, which um, I stayed with for a long time. Um, I, you know, the LLC worked fine for me. Uh, it, in the end, I felt much better having it because I wound up signing a lease on a big office and renting out to other people. Um, and I, I liked having the protection, uh, the liability protection on that lease. So, um, you know, and also an LLC is a really cheap thing to form and maintain. And, and I liked having the, um, the business entity to help me sort of organize my finances. For example, you, you, you know, you don't want to have, you, you can't be intermingling your business and personal checking accounts. You can, it's just really clunky and complicated. And so having that business yeah. essentially forces you to have separate checking accounts, which helps, I think. Yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. Um, and we have, um, you know, in the, where I, in the jurisdictions where I practice, we have uh, the PLLC, which is the, I guess, the equivalent of the LLC where you are, unless you have PLL or professional corporations. I think or, you have the option um, to call but, yourself that if you want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no, you're right. It does help. Uh, you know, it, it does help with a lot of that. And, um, and I think, again, you know, if you 
decide down the line, like one of the things that I'm always thinking about is, you know, like offering some different end, like a sort of a lower end of service, some automated or unbundling thing. Um, I can just set it up as a separate subsidiary of the LLC. And it just seems to make more sense to, to do it that way than, you know, be one person offering like low end and high end services. So it sounds uh, like we're so. both pretty ambivalent on whether or not it's urgent that you form a business entity, but it's probably a good idea if you're going to do anything other than be by yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so here's probably the, <laughs> we, we've left the, uh, probably the most, uh, the two most important questions I get uh, from people are, how do you get business? And um, how am I, you know, how much money am I going to make? And so let's take uh-huh. those in the reverse order. How much money should somebody save up before they go solo? That, that's what everybody wants to know, and, and I don't have a, a perfect set answer. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's very, I think part of that is it's just, it's so situation dependent. And, you know, I mean, first of all, if you already have savings, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you don't, you may not have to save more. Um, if you are, you know, married or live with a parent or somebody who is paying, you know, say you're, for, for your housing expenses, you may not need as much. It may just be enough to sort of, you know, cut back on the family budget and, you know, you still may be able to, to make ends meet. Um, so, and, and then you may also have student loans and I don't know, you know, it will depend on, you know, whether you have, uh, you know, you can forbear, you can, uh, wait on paying them and take like a forbearance for a few months or, you know, if you've got to pay down the the student loans too. So, I mean, I think it's certainly, you know, at least having like, you know, a month or two saved up to, you know, for some basic um, expenses. And again, it depends what, again, what type of situation you're in. I mean, just because you are currently working doesn't necessarily mean that you will be able to save up a lot, but um, I think just generally it's a good idea if you anticipate starting to just start at least if not saving then cutting back expenses and getting accustomed to maybe living on less so that you have more flexibility down the road. But I know that it used to be, you know, you've got to have a year of savings, six months of savings. And just today that doesn't really seem very realistic, right. especially given that people often have the student loan debt, maybe, you know, mortgage on a house, you know, and the six months or a year just doesn't seem very Our realistic. financial advisor is a big fan of practicing. So every time, you know, we, we ask him about, you know, should we, should we be budgeting for this? Should we plan on do this? He's like, practice, right? Like if you, if you want to buy a new car um, and that's going to cost you $400 a month to pay for the car loan, start taking $400 a month out of your bank account every month right now and stick it in savings and see if you can get by without that money. And, um, and you, you know, the worst thing that could happen is you get to the end of three or six months and you're like, whoa, there's no way we can do without that money. And you've got a bunch of money in your savings account. So I, I usually tell people who are considering going solo to practice, um, get rid of your, ah. get rid of your car. If you, if you can, um, get rid of all the ongoing expenses that you can, because one of the things you have to practice is, um, you have to practice the possibility that you're not going to make any money for you know potentially three to six months you may break even during that time ideally but you may not really make a whole lot of money so you need to get your expenses down to the absolute minimum and then you should for the three months or six months or however much time you've given yourself leading up to going solo 
um, you should practice. And so you'll be building your savings at the same time as you'll be getting used to the standard of living that you may have to endure for the next three to six months. And that doesn't mean you won't make money once you go solo, of course, but it means you'll be prepared for the worst, which I always think is a good idea when you're going to be doing something risky like starting a business. Yeah, no, that's a very good idea. I mean, I guess also when you're employed, um, because employers will usually pay you for vacation leave, you know, if you can avoid taking uh, vacation or sick days or any of those uh, days that you might be compensated for when you leave, um, you know, that can also give you a little bit of uh, wiggle room. You know, if you have like a month of vacation time uh, after you leave your position, that kind of covers another month and it gives you a little bit more time. But but the um, the practice is that that is a very good suggestion. Yeah, I think I don't know how many people have taken me up on it, but <laughs> but I, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so now I don't want to I don't want to go into a long um, sort of a marketing podcast, but mm-hmm. but I people are you know everyone I talk to about going solo is worried about getting business, and um, I guess how do we allay their fears? Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because it's sort of like the best laid plans. And a lot of times the places that you think are going to be a source of business turn out not to be. And very unlikely places uh, become a potential source oh, yeah. of business. But I, I guess I think generally... Um, in, in terms of getting business, I mean, I think doing the, you know, networking, meeting with people, you know, initially, um, and, and laying a foundation for giving them a call when you start a practice is a good idea. I mean, that way you avoid sort of, you know, calling someone you haven't spoken with in three years and say, oh, hi, I just started a practice. Do you have any work? Um, but, you know, I, so, but I, I definitely think that, um, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, it really, gosh, it depends on practice areas, too. I guess if you have, you know, consumer practice areas, certainly, um, you know, getting, just getting out and, you know, meeting more people who may be potential targets really seems to be the best way to, you know, increase the likelihood of um, of of getting business or bringing business well, in. Well, I, I always think, too, like, um, so you're going to be doing one of two things once you start your business. You're either going to be working on behalf of clients, or you're not going to be working on behalf of clients, in which case you're going to have a lot of time. And if you want this business to succeed, you're going to be working your ass off no matter what. And so if you devoted yourself to trying to get business, you are probably going to get business unless you turn out to be just really bad at it. And Mm -hmm. so if you're spending 40 hours a week getting business because you don't have any, it's going to materialize. So you can be a creative, hardworking person and you can network your tail off. You can write blog posts or um, do write articles for your bar journal. You can come up with CLE seminars in your area of practice. You can figure out things that might work um, and some of them will and eventually it will pile up. But if you come into it with nothing but time, as long as you use that time wisely, I think you're going to end up with business. That, I guess that's kind of the the line that I usually give people, and I don't know if that allays their fears or not. But yeah, I mean, and it's definitely. I mean, a lot of it is really um, well is is being persistent and also trying to figure out what the best um, what the best source is or what your your best market is. I mean, for years and years, I went to these energy bar association events, and I never got 
anything from them. It was just like radio silence. I kept going, kept, you know, and it was just, it was a complete waste of time. So I had to come up with, you know, different ways to, um, you know, to, to get the word out. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's some sources that just for one reason or another won't work for you. And, you know, for every story you hear about the person who got involved in the bar association and started at the bottom rung and, you know, became well known, there's a story of a person who did the same thing and was like ignored or, you know, not, didn't get a good reception. So it, it just means that you have to go on to find another uh, source of, of, networking that is going to work better for you yeah and i think so. in the end um you know i i don't think this is wrong but what one of the things i usually tell people is this is just what you're afraid of now getting clients is not as hard as you think it's something that never stops being a challenge but it's not as hard as you think you've just never exercised that muscle before and as soon as you do i think you'll find that you are able to get business yeah, I think that that um, I think that that's true um, because I mean you know it it happens. People start firms and eventually they start finding clients. And once you start getting the first group through the door, you know generally they will refer you more work or you know have more work for you. And so it starts to you kind of hit your stride. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe maybe this is just my misguided optimism, but I think that. If you work your ass off and you stick with it, you can be a successful solo. Now, success is like, you know, just a massive um, range of success, but you can absolutely make a living as a solo if you work your ass off and stick to it. Um, and so I think, I guess, picking that date when you are going to start working your ass off and sticking to it may be mm -hmm. the most crucial part of the entire process, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think that solos, people who are thinking about going solo, um, probably the biggest challenge is just diving in and doing it and finding out that it's not so bad as they think. And I think you and I agree that we think it's pretty awesome once you once you finally do it and it's hard to consider going back. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. So as a, 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 by way of wrapping up here, I want to point out that um, at myshingle.com, are a ton of amazing resources if you are planning to go solo. Um, I see something like 10 checklists and how-to guides for starting a law practice from various bar associations. Carolyn, I think you actually have a course for people who are going solo, right? Yeah, I have. Um, there is a class now that's on um, Udemy, and there's a link to it from my site, so it's a free class. That's U-D-E-M-Y, right? Yes, U D-E-M-Y. So 1,800 people have signed up for it. Um, and many of them have sat through at least one of the classes. And that's always it's the part of the these educational seminars is that, uh, you know, not everybody will sit through them all. But uh, yeah, and so that has, um, it's got a segment on, you know, setting fees, um, marketing. Uh, it's, it's probably about two years old, but it's still reasonably uh reasonably current any other things that you think people should read or or watch or 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 listen to as they're starting to think about going solo you know i think the benefit of starting a practice today is there's just there's access to to so much material i mean back when i started i don't know if this was the case when you started either but it was basically you know foonberg which um at the time that i read it I didn't really agree with a lot of it. It seemed very rules oriented. You have to do it this way. You have to do this and this. And, you know, that was, I was starting practice. So I was rejecting a lot of it, which probably wasn't such a good idea. But um, today there are just um, 
so many resources. So I would look at, um, I mean, I would read everything out there um, on solo practice. I mean, I would, you know, read my book. I would read even, you know, Brian Tannenbaum's book, which is not about starting a practice, but has some, you know, ideas about starting. I would read blogs by people who have uh, started uh, solo firms like uh, your blog. And, and then the other thing that I would do too is read a lot of the, um, the entrepreneurship books. I mean, I'm not, a lot of people are really into the e-myth. It's about systematizing your practice. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a one trick pony book where mm-hmm. you read one chapter and you're kind of there. Um, I sort of like the really, um, you know, more um, inspirational or encouraging entrepreneurship uh, blogs like, you know, Seth Godin or, um, I mean, even, you know, reading some of the tech blogs, books, books in that genre too, because they, they get you, they're, they're very inspiring and can do. And when, when you're a lawyer, you often forget that there is that component of, of your business as well. So I would look I think at those. Lots of people will be quick to point out that lawyers shouldn't emulate tech startup world, for example, which I agree with, but I also, I'm totally with you that I think um, you can take inspiration from a lot of those books. And there are, th- you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the e-myth, um, although I, I think it's painful to read. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the five the four-hour work week. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know, I think I've taken a lot of inspiration from those books, even if I can come up with a bunch of reasons why it's not completely applicable to a law practice. So maybe the last closing thought here is um, one of the attorneys I worked for uh, told me that if you want to be successful as a lawyer, you should plan to go solo at some point in your career. Um, and I was I was kind of surprised by that. But then I went solo and um, it was I'll never regret going solo. Um, it was one of the best decisions I ever made, even though I didn't really mean to make it at the time. And so I think I know how you feel about this, but um, do you agree? Do you think solo practice is the best way to practice? You know, it's funny. I'm actually, I'm very, I'm very mixed on it. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, definitely you have more control. You have more of an ability to, I think, to, to do things that matter because you're much closer to people and to their problems. Um, but I do have to say, you know, I mean, especially, you know, I, I turned 50 this year. I have friends who, you know, worked like dogs from day one at a big firm. And, you know, maybe the work was not the most fascinating, but eventually, you know, after time, they did work their way up to larger cases and, um, you know, they earn a lot of money. And um, I, I can't say if that's better or worse, but there still are benefits to, I, I suppose, to that that way of practice too. But I think everybody should at least give it a try at some point in their career. I do think that being solo, running your own firm at some time makes you a better lawyer in any context. I mean, I think that a lot of the complaints about large firms with, you know, lawyers like setting budgets for cases that are completely out of control or like 50 layers of redundancy. I mean, once you've been solo for a couple of years, you see through all of that stuff. So I definitely would say without reservation that practicing on your own for a couple of years um, makes you a better lawyer in any context. Fantastic. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here today. And um, we hope to talk to you again soon about solo practice. Okay, great. (laughs) 
This episode of The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, that the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put him through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby, and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com lawyerist and find out for yourself. So each week we answer a question from our audience in a segment we call Ask Lawyerist, and you can submit a question for consideration in a future episode by sending an email to email at lawyerist.com or using the hashtag AskLawyerist on Twitter. And this week's question comes from Twitter where a reader asked, are there any benefits to filing a PC or PLLC instead of a sole proprietorship? She says, same taxes, same liability, less paperwork. Uh, what do you think, Sam? Do you agree with this? Uh, well, so Aaron and I talked about this a little bit, and I think we agreed that she is wrong on all counts, but she's yeah. not necessarily wrong about considering a sole proprietorship. I think that's right. So <laughs> let's go one by one. Same taxes. Take it away. Um, so it dep- the answer there is it depends. If she uh, forms a corporation, she would be taxed as a corporation, which would not be the same taxes as a sole proprietorship. But and I think she gets a lot of flexibility in. Uh, she gets some more flexibility in if she's a corporation, right? I mean, she can she can pay. She has to pay herself as an employee, but she can um, because the corporation is a separate entity. Um, you get some additional options when it comes to where you put money for taxes and all that kind of stuff is my understanding, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably not the purview of us in Minnesota on a po- podcast to give specific tax advice, but yeah, there are different tax considerations for a corporation than for a sole proprietorship. Or an LLC, uh, which is a pass-through entity. 
if taxed as a pass-through ent right. entity, then right. then it would effectively exist similar to a sole proprietorship. So I was a corporation. I was a single-member corporation, uh, and then I was a single-member LLC. Um, but obviously, I didn't learn a ton about doing those, even in Minnesota. Right. So I, I just used my accountant. And that's what I would recommend you do, is if you're selecting between a PC or a PLLC or a corporation or LLC, however those are, whatever letters apply to those in your state, talk to your accountant and figure out which one is going to be best. Um, because I think that's got to be a personal decision uh, between you and your accountant once you kind of know what your firm is going to look like. And it may depend on whether you're going to have employees or whether or not you want benefits or all kinds of stuff. So so then another issue she raises is less paperwork. And I'm assuming, I mean, it is for sure the case that you don't then have to file corporate registration or LLC registration, but that's really not very burdensome paperwork. Um, no, I mean, forming an LLC should take 20 minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Yes, and, and re-registering at least in a state like ours that has online registration takes even less time than that. Um, I mean, there there, is... there's less paperwork if you don't maintain separate bank accounts or something, but that's just a bad idea, period. So, I mean, Extremely you, bad idea. I mean, even if you're right. going to be a sole proprietorship, you should have a separate checking account for your law practice. Let alone trust accounting issues don't change. And on liability, you know, it's not the same liability. It's the same liability when it comes to malpractice, but it's it's different when it comes to financial liability for the contracts that you sign. For example, if you sign a lease, you're, if you have a company, then it shields you from liability. If, you're, if you don't have a company, then you are personally liable. So should you form a company or should you stay a sole proprietorship? I, I think it depends on a number of things, and here are some of the things to consider. Um, I think you know once you start signing a lease and incurring uh, non-professional liability, you might want to consider having a company that shields you from some liability. That's probably especially true if you're married or you have kids and you have you, your personal liability could impact them as well. Um, but yeah, don't fool yourself. You can't shield yourself from malpractice liability either way. That's why you have insurance. Right. And then, of course, like always, the best advice is go talk to a lawyer or accountant about your specific scenario to figure out what the best answer is. Oh, yeah. And I mean, every state that has um, a CLE organization probably has a new lawyer CLE where this is one of the first questions that people want to know. And, um, you know, I got when I started out, I got my advice from a lawyer. And I think I got good advice for what I imagined my firm to be at the time. And then later on, I changed it because my firm ended up looking a little bit different. Um, but um, I, would you know, I would absolutely get advice from both an accountant and potentially a business lawyer before you form it. And um, just like we start advising people later on that you're about to embark on a big important thing, don't skimp on the lawyer fees. The same goes for you talk to a lawyer, talk to an accountant, get the advice you need to form the right company because you're you're not stuck with it forever, but it's it's what your company's going to look like for a while. Right. So it sounds like you and I agree that there are benefits potentially to forming a corporation or an LLC over a sole proprietorship and that we disagree that they are the same taxes, same liability and less paperwork. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Sam.
To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.